Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Online learning has become an important part of many organizations' learning and development strategy. However, there's still a lot to understand in how to make online learning an engaging and effective tool for development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. David Gorelnik, who is the author of a fantastic new book called How Organizations Can Make the Most of Online Learning. It's a very important topic because there's so much to cover. It is a very different way of learning than the face-to-face classroom learning that many organizations have done. And often it is not well understood. This is a wonderful handbook that covers the many, many important topics in making online learning successful, and it covers it in a very approachable and easy way. It provides a lot of knowledge and also references on how to what to explore further and learn more about. This is also a great conversation that we are having right now because next week is the start of the Learning Ideas Conference, which is being held both online and in person at Columbia University in New York. And Dr. David Gorelnik is the founder and chair of that conference, where academics and practitioners from around the world come together to discuss and learn about the new ways that learning can happen, both in higher education and in the workplace. It is a fantastic conference, and if you haven't already signed up, it's possible to sign up. It's happening in a very inclusive, hybrid way, so you can sign up online um, or, of course, come to New York to be in person. Now, a little bit about Dr. David Gorelnik, who is the president and CEO of Kaleidoscope Learning and a consultant specialized in the use of technology to improve job performance. He is also the current president of the International E-Learning Association, founder and chair of the Learning Ideas Conference, and an adjunct professor at Columbia University. David has created the first e-learning-specific authoring tool and the award-winning Watch, Rate, and Compare e-learning approach. He is an expert in the field, and David has won over 200 awards in the e-learning industry. David focuses his deep knowledge of the industry to reimagine learning in higher education and the workplace. Well, thank you very much, David, for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk with you. I'm really looking forward to talking about your book, uh, which came out last year, How Organizations Can Make the Most of Online Learning, which is a very important topic. And I love the way that you created this book because it's, it's very much... Uh, a reference, user's guide, easy easy to read, uh, a very good overview for people and organizations to get the essence of what they should be really thinking about when they are creating online learning, which, as you and I both know, can be extremely effective, but it can also go very, very flat and very wrong in so many ways. So I love the way that you laid out this book, and I, I look forward to talking about it and what you wrote in it. But can you tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write this? 
Sure. Um, I mean, I've always kind of been interested in writing a book. I've written you know, some other things. I've written articles and other things, but never, you know, book chapters and things, but never a full book before. And so it was something that was on my mind. And then I actually did get approached by a publisher about the possibility of writing a book kind of roughly in that area. And so that kind of just, you know, started the conversation and from there and arrived, I think, fairly quickly at kind of a focus that, you know, I felt provided value and they felt was, you know, something that suited what they wanted to publish. And what did you see was missing? I mean, this is definitely a, a bit of an overcrowded space by now, but I think it really serves a very important purpose. But I want to hear your perspective on what need you felt needed to be addressed in this space. Thanks. So I think what, you know, what what I see a lot out there is kind of, as you mentioned, there's just a lot of online learning that works, but a lot of online learning that doesn't. And what I wanted to try to do was write, you know, a, a book about how can we take, you know, effective progressive learning methods and new technologies and combine them all in the ways to really help people enjoy their experiences and improve performance and, and sort of in a, you know, design experiences that are done in a, in a respectful way that's, that's applicable to what people's jobs are and puts people in a position where they feel like this is meaningful and relevant to them and it's something that's going to help them do their jobs. And all of those to me are very interdisciplinary, right? So there's, you know, there's the research behind it. There's the creative side of things. Some of the research is from different fields. It's not just education, it's cognitive science. It's so much from the technology side. Some of it's from, you know, motivational research and, and technology. So to try to bring all of these things together and then almost take them, take these sort of themes themselves and apply them, right? So in other words, you know, you're working in a corporate L&D department or you are, a chief learning officer, or even if you're a CEO, perhaps, you want to understand what are some things that we can do to really make an impact, to really help people improve performance in a way that feels right to them, right? So it's, it's cultural as well. To give people a way that they could quickly get to all that. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really good stuff out there, but it usually requires effort and interpretation and time to really sift through what's the part that applies to me. So I tried to sort of distill down what are the things that really apply to most organizations and how can you kind of get the best out of this and try to also structure the book so you can jump around a lot too. And the book is divided into very, very discrete chapters. You know, I enjoy fiction and as, as well, but there's no real underlying plot in that sense here, right? You aren't, you're not missing the character development. You can jump to the part that you need and use it much more, you know, just in time. And that was also one of the goals. Mm, absolutely. Because I definitely like, as you said, it really touches on topics that are important, but then it doesn't go so deep that it's irrelevant to the people who are leading the company or organization or LND. And you talk about not just how technology plays a role and the type of courses to create and how to think about it, but also when you need outside help, when you need consultants, what to think about, how to navigate that world a little bit. It's really a fantastic book for people to be able to easily access what's important. But I like what you just said about respecting people's time and appreciating it. And in in the book, you write that forward-thinking organizations look for ways to make their employees feel valued and appreciated, providing learning and performance support experiences that treat employees respectfully by providing applicable, useful content and activities and using collegial language that doesn't talk down to the employees can separate themselves and improve their cultures. I thought that was so great because one of the important things I always say is we need to respect the learner, respect their time. People don't often think about that when they're designing learning. Of course, everyone's trying to do something good and trying to do something that is an effective learning experience, but often you don't think about it in terms of 
are you really respecting their time? The fact that is it useful to them? Is it something that they can apply? So that must be something you and your company has come up against often, as I I haven't often seen it written down quite like that. Yeah, and I think it's a, a, a you know philosophy that we have at Kaleidoscope Learning at my company in terms of the you know we do a lot of custom online learning experiences of various types for big and small organizations and sometimes universities. And, and that's something that that is a theme that we that we have, you know, especially when you're working with an adult audience. I mean, you want to respect their time and you also want to respect, you want to choose approaches that feel respectful, right? Like, I mean, we've all been through online learning courses that we feel like, ah, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? And you just kind of do it because it's, you know, it's, it's a chore and you feel like, in a lot of those situations that you're sort of being treated as a small child. And I'm not actually certain that that's the right way to do education for small children either, but that's a little bit beyond the scope of, of what we're talking about here. But certainly for adult learners, you want put people in positions, you know, these are professional people, these are adults, these are people who have their own opinions on things. You know, it's not, this is the expert telling you what to do, you listen and absorb. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not a great learning method anyway, but it certainly isn't the right method for most situations in any kind of professional organizational sense. And I think that there are a lot of side effects of that approach. Like people are often accustomed to it, but they don't like it. So if you if you as an organization start with putting people in positions where, hey, you know, the things from the L&D department, the things that I'm getting that are part of my training and help me do my job, they really help me do my job. They treat me in the language that they use, in the style of the inner, of the activity, as something that like, I I am a professional person coming into this. I'm not being forced to do something that I'm not sure I even find relevant. It puts you in a really good position from a, a cultural perspective. And I think that's where things can go, you know, kind of off the rails a lot in some of the, the learning that, that we see out there where it's, you know, you have to watch something and take a quiz on it and, you know, okay, well, well, sorry, David, that's wrong. You'll have to try again. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that anyone talked to me like that when I was five and I probably wouldn't have liked it if they did, <laughs> but I certainly don't want to be talked to like that at this age. And it really, you know, it's almost, it's almost a form of microaggression, right? It's, but that's what it feels like, right? <laughs> you know, is what it feels like. That's and you get that time and time again. And you think like, I, you know, somewhere inside, you may not verbalize, you may not even fully articulate it or even know, but it's some most people are going to resent this yes. at some level mm-hmm. and they're going to resent the organization for putting them through it at some level. And, you know, I think that's really at the heart of the kinds of experiences that we want to design are those that, that are built in such a way that they don't do that and that we don't, you know, and they don't have to be like that. I guess my sort of last relevant point about this is that, you know, so much traditional education came from a model that was necessary for really different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you go back in the old days, people learned, by doing. They learned by apprenticeships. They'd work with an expert. They'd form a relationship. They would start with smaller tasks and move to complex tasks. And they were, you know, things were you know, very much more, more active and applied. That doesn't work for mass education in the world that we've mostly lived in, in throughout our lifetimes, because you just didn't have enough experts and teachers to handle the, the number of people who needed to learn something, right? So this is where you end up with, you know, we have university lecture halls with 500 people, you know, with that kind of model. Well, technology, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Technology gives us a lot of options and a lot of opportunities to put people in really interesting situations that they can learn and that they will scale up. If you build a piece of software, one person can use it, a million people can use it, it's all the same. And so there's obviously a lot to think about in terms of what level of individualization we can achieve, where does AI fit in? Yes, all those things are are big things, but that's really the opportunity of technology. And it's often, so often still, Change is hard, right? So we see a lot of taking existing old models. Okay, let's take 
the you know the quiz model and move it online. Okay, well the quiz model mostly exists because it was the only way that people could handle the the the, the scale of the number of people who needed to you know show some kind of of expertise. But mm -hmm. with the technology advantages that we have, we don't have to do it that way. And so a lot of the theme in the book also is, you know, what can we really do to use technology in different ways to provide the kinds of experiences that you and I were just talking about that are meaningful and respectful and appropriately applied to the jobs that they're they're doing. So can you tell me an example? I mean, I think most people would absolutely agree. And sometimes people would say, well, okay, but what does that look like? What would be a, a different experience than telling someone they took a quiz and it's wrong? Can you describe some of the more interesting ways that you would approach this? Sure, absolutely. Um, one of the early, early ones, this is, goes, goes way back, but it's kind of still a nice example and some auto we've used over and over, was um, a customer service training simulation for retail stores. So here you have a fairly entry level and younger audience, right? So there's, they're not coming in as older professionals, they're coming in as young, young people who haven't really done this job before, and may not have done any job before. But nonetheless, um, the way it was typically taught was by, you know, helping people learn the principles of customer service. They probably have to quiz on the principles of customer service, which one of the following is not a principle of customer service. Th those kinds of quizzes would measure retention and wouldn't really measure whether you could do anything. And, and they were really usually quizzes that people weren't going to get anything wrong. Like, you know, yelling at the customer is probably bad customer service, you know, <laughs> asking questions of the customer to yes. understand their needs is good customer service, right? So yeah. That's the respect as well. I feel that when you're taking a quiz and you think, well, of course, everybody knows this. It's so obvious. Why are you asking me? Yeah. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think I think that model lends itself to that. So it's, yes, it feels disrespectful. It feels, you know, like you're back in, in the kind of school that you don't want to be in. And, right. you know, you know, school is great, but that kind of school where you're simply lectured at and don't get to think at all is is, is not a great model mm -hmm. for anybody at any age uh, and on top of that you know it doesn't really apply like you know I mean, people are going to get this right it doesn't you know it doesn't give you any indication of whether they're going to be good at customer service I mean, who knows right? you know right. i mean they're good at memorization i can do a study about correlation between being good at memorizing things and being good at customer service and i think if anything it's probably gonna be negative i have to guess but so what we did in that case was build a simulation where you had customers coming up in video and you had to decide how to handle the situation and you had a series of choices and that first one way back, you actually kind of compiled your response from a, a set of options, which are a little bit more complex. But even if it was just a set of simpler choices, the choices were not entirely obvious. So there would be, you know, you know, sometimes you did need, you know, because the situations were constructed so that the choices weren't always obvious. Like sometimes, you know, the customer is always right, but not really, right? Like the customer can't just come give you an item that they didn't buy at your store and you have to take it. Like that's, right. there is a line somewhere as a customer service representative where, mm -hmm. you know, you have to hold the line and know how to do that. So you would have these people in video, they come up, you would work with them. There was a coaching component that you could ask questions of to help you if you were like, oh, this guy's staring at me on video. I don't know what to do. Who can help <laughs> me? There was feedback if you made mistakes, sometimes just in time when it happened, sometimes at the end. Some things would play out. So sometimes you would say something wrong and the customer would, would get angry or the customer would, you know, get away with something like, you know, a return they shouldn't have gotten away with. Sometimes we would interrupt. There were a lot of different design decisions at that level. But basically, this was a, a really interesting learn by doing experience that felt a fair amount like the kinds of experiences that they would really have and mm. came from experiences that people had. Like our team to write those spent hours watching 
shadowing you know the the actual experience they really were i mean they were literally in the shadows they were off to the side of the customer service desk watching and listening and taking notes on what real interactions were like mm. and that generated a lot of the the situations that people face so the learn by doing approach worked really really well and also did to get to your earlier point feel respectful it felt you know this is cool this is interesting this is relevant like this is what i'm going to be doing this mm -hmm. isn't you know making me memorize something that like, well, why do I have to recite 12 principles of customer service just to work on the, uh, the customer service desk? Nobody's going to ask me this. Yeah. And here it's like, oh, you even find yourself noticing like, oh, look at that. I, you know, I thought the right thing to do when the guy was angry was to tell him politely, I'm sorry, we just can't take that back. But that wasn't really the right thing because it turns out that's, he's just too angry. I've got to kind of do something mid-range first and calm him down a little bit and express my, my understanding of his emotions before yes. I get to that. Even though I think he's obviously wrong and crazy and yeah. everybody probably thinks he's obviously wrong and crazy. So those, there were things, there were real things to learn. I think then the respect and the appreciation increases as people go through it because they're like, oh my, hey, yeah, you know, I wouldn't have gotten that right. But they didn't mm -hmm. get it right because it was it was a legitimately challenging, complicated situation. Yes, absolutely. That's a lot of great points. I think especially picking up on your point about the fact that your learning designers observed in the background for a long time. This preparation, and I hear it all the time, trying to develop the learning objectives, trying to understand the work that is being, that you're trying to teach, uh, it takes time and it's often the most difficult process in creating good learning, but it's so critical, isn't it? Because you don't pick up the nuances. You don't know what the ultimate purpose is unless you take the time to develop that at the start. Absolutely. And I think I'd go even maybe a step further on that and say like, it's um, what you do, what I what I suggest people do in that phase and what we do in that phase, the early state phase of understanding the to what the, what the problem is goes a lot beyond what kind of gets considered, you know, educational content, right? So it's not even just what are the things that people need to learn. It's from the goal standpoint, what do they need to be able to do? And then at a level down from that, it's immersing yourself in things that maybe don't always get cast as, as quote unquote education, but should be, right? Some of the things you're mentioning, you get a feel for the job, you get a feel for the voice, you get a feel for the language that people use, you get a feel for the interruptions that they face on the job and how the job is, you know? So mm -hmm. we actually had another project for um, actually the same retail company, but for their managers that was initially scoped with the headquarters group as another kind of simulation where they would run a store and they would kind of, you know, spend about, about a, a pretty intense hour on this simulation where like really interesting things happen across the store and you, you're constantly dealing with different, different problems that you would face as a store manager. And it would, mm -hmm. you know, that concept really sounded pretty good. And when we went in to interview the store managers to really get a level deeper into, you know, into the content and the voice and the language and exactly what happened, everything, we'd sit down, this happened at every store, sit down with the store manager. Never did we go more than about five minutes without someone coming into their office with something that needed their attention. So that made us rethink what we were going to be doing as a learning experience, right? What we're going to be designing. Because you can't design an intense hour-long learning experience if somebody's going to get interrupted every five minutes. Absolutely. And they're going to get interrupted. They're not going to put this aside. Like this wasn't something that you were going to be able to do before you're ever a manager. This was really the kind of thing you wanted to roll out to existing managers. And, you know, whoever the audience was, was always going to have some job. They weren't doing it on their own time or being asked to do it on their own time. Those were constraints from the client. Right. It wasn't really going to work. Right. So we had to rethink so that the learning experience itself suited the workflow and the needs of the audience. And then within it, we wanted to capture the needs of the audience and the voice. Um, another example is we've done a lot for legal education. 
a client called PLI, which is the Practicing Law Institute, which has a really nice research and development arm it's called the Interactive Learning Center. And they really do have some, you know, let's do some interesting things. And, and we do them together with, with them. Their lead is a, a guy named JC Kinnaman, who did his, his PhD at, at Columbia um, years ago as well. And so he's in our field and really interested mm-hmm. in those. So the stuff that we've done with, with JC and PLI involves a lot of realistic scenes, a lot of the, the you know, a lot of what's there. So, you know, it's really easy for everybody to understand what the principles are. But again, how do you apply them? So we you know, do a lot of actor scenes. We film these scenes. We have to analyze them or participate in them in a simulation kind of way. But a lot of what makes those work is that the characters feel real, that they feel the situations are realistic. They come from discussions with subject matter experts, at the very least, from stories. You know, you can't really see that on people's legal conversations. So you can quite get that level of shadowing. But they come from real stories, from people who are, you know, real attorneys who tell things abstractly enough that nobody could possibly know what, you know, what situation is, they're not violating confidence, but they come from real stories. And then the voice is real. The conversation feels real. The lawyers sound like lawyers, you know, they, they, and that's all absolutely critical in making the experience feel again, meaningful and relevant. Also that it's, you know, it's for you as the audience, like, oh, you know, I actually do care about this. A lot of the stuff that they've seen maybe seems like it's kind of, you know, artificial. And it's like when you see something that some kind of marketing piece that was produced by a brand, you're like, well, you know, who is this for? I'm, I'm the audience. That's not for me. Yes. You know, they don't know what I do. And so you you want to avoid that feeling too. So a lot of the early stages, going back to what we were talking about before, we kind of call the content collection analysis phase, involve understanding the audience and the goals and the voice in a really detailed way. And everything down to the language that you want to use should suit the, the you know, the end audience, not the not the intermediary audience, not the, you know, not the people who are paying, but the people who are going to be, be actually going through the experience. Right. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, unless it's meaningful and unless it's impactful, then it's a complete waste of resources. So sometimes when when there's that hesitation to spend this amount of time at the beginning, you can slap together a learning experience that you call a learning experience. It can be put together very quickly, but then it becomes a massive drain on resources, doesn't it? Because people take this course, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't have impact, people don't learn anything from it. And then that's becomes a much bigger, complete waste of resources, time, money. And I think sometimes people don't realize the amount of time that goes into creating good learning at the beginning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right. I think that is absolutely the sort of the hidden cost of not really doing it right is that you roll out things that are, you know, maybe checking a box because you've been asked to check a box, but right. they're not, they're, they're, they're harming rather than helping. And mm-hmm. The, you know, the cost is at the very least taking people away from their jobs to do something that's not going to help them at all. And sometimes it's more than that, because you do get this this resistance to things that are not really designed in a way that's going to be helpful. And, right. you know, it's going to it's going to build up over time. And I don't want to yeah. go as far as to say that, you know, people are going to quit because of bad learning experiences. But at some level, that's I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of cases where that is a contributing factor to their overall satisfaction in their job. Right. I mean, it has been said that increasingly more and more people make their decisions on where they work by how much they feel that the organization is investing in them, that it's meaningful, that uh, they can grow and develop does have a big impact. One of the things that you talk about, among many other things, but the learning management systems, which I wanted to touch on, because I hear this over and over again, where organizations say we need an LMS or we need a new LMS often because that will solve our problems. So can you talk a little bit about the LMS? Because of course it has amazing potential and it is used in in cases really, really well and effectively, 
but it also has some pitfalls to to be careful about. You know, I mean, you, you certainly understand the goals of LMS is to have things in a centralized place. People can keep track of things and people know what everyone's using. I think there's, you know, way too much emphasis on on scores, but, you know, you understand sort of the, the end goals. In practice, uh, certainly in my view, a lot of what LMSs have done has been been more of a constraint. Um, a lot of the courses, you know, that I've seen that are really, really good, a lot of the experience are really good are not necessarily in SCORM format, which requires, you know, using to really do it generally practically uses certain tools and consolidating things into a, you know, a single zip file that gets uploaded. So a whole lot of issues around the level of creativity and flexibility that that allows, especially that, that allows efficiently. So there are things that you can't do or you simply just can't do without a learning designer almost being a, a you know a software developer mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the role that they take on. And so I think there've been a lot of constraints in that way. And then I think, yeah, conceptually, you know, this is sort of a big picture technology problem, right? Like people tend to think like technology is going to solve our problems. And I, I don't know that it usually does, right? You know, technology amplifies, creates a lot of problems. It amplifies yes, a lot. It often amplifies the problems. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And philosophically, my view of what technology should do in learning and, and everywhere is free up our time as people to do the human things, right? To do more creative work, to be able to have more time together. You know, you imagine a world where technology makes, you know, things easier and we can, you know, we can all enjoy life more and, and, and have more time to think and have more time to be creative in our work. And instead it often drives things the other way, right? So mm-hmm. instead technology often dictates what happens. So I've spoken mm-hmm. with so many people in my consulting work who are in L&D departments. It's like most of their job is dealing with, the LMS, you know, it's usually mm-hmm. the, the dreaded or the hated LMS, right? <laughs> by that point, it always has a modifier by the time that they're used to it. So, you know, but that because the, the LMS is structured and, you know, any piece of technology is structured in a certain way, is it really, it's a delivery system primarily. And so people then have to put things in the format that it needs. And then it has some things that don't quite work and it hasn't really been designed for everybody's purposes. So you get a lot of that. You get a lot of Jobs that were not really IT jobs kind of become IT jobs. Yeah. That really isn't the intent, right? The intent is the opposite, right? The intent is free us up. The technology handles this so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really play out that way in practice. But I think it, in particular, LMSs, you know, maybe because they kind of, a lot of the built-in, even the, the built-in features that kind of make it a little easier to run courses are built around the old-fashioned model of content and testing are the, are the primary things. Experience isn't really the thing. And so you get more things now that are, you know, learning experience design-oriented right. and, and systems that are really built around that model. I think that's obviously better. You're still finding yourself, I think, adding on to an infrastructure that isn't really the right one. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge. Like, you know, when can we reach the point where we can kind of take a step back and start over as an industry a little bit more in those ways. So I think a lot of the thinking is getting in that direction, but I'll work somewhere where, you know, legacy technology is is there and it's not going to go away anytime soon and try to think about what the right way is to kind of back your way into getting the, the better experiences being the lead rather than being occasional, you know, occasional special projects. And right. I think that, you know, the, the technology driving anything is going to cause that, whatever the system is. So it's not certainly a, let me LMS is in particular, but in any Anywhere that you are, if technology is driving the thinking rather than supporting the thinking around the goals and making people's lives easier, you're probably going to be going in the wrong direction. Absolutely. Really, really important points. And uh, I mean, there's a lot to to cover on this topic, but um, one of the things that I thought was uh, quite different from, from your book was that you talked a little bit about how to get outside help and when that's appropriate and some of the things to think about. So can you, you know, just give one or two aspects that people should think about when they are seeking 
or when they should seek some outside help for designing their learning? Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, there are a couple of times that people I think should look for, for outside assistance, um, even if you have an internal team. So the most obvious one is simply just when you need additional resources, right? Like not everybody has the time to do everything that you want, even if you have you know, a, a really appropriately sized team and, and a fantastic team, You're, there are ebbs and flows, there are times where you need more help. So there's certainly, that's going to send you to the outside. Sometimes there's just too many projects you need some, some outside view. But the other thing, I, I think the other place where there's a lot of value and often more value is bringing in people who do have a, a different perspective, um, often particularly in the ways that you can use technology. There's just a matter of what you do as an internal L&D person, you're very focused a lot of your time on your company's goals and content as, as you should be, right? You're internal to a company. And so combining that with somebody who's got a, a broader set of everyday experiences is really, really helpful in bringing in people who have maybe some technology that they can bring in that in the right ways in the ways that they, they understand it. And also different, different approaches, different concepts um, coming in from a different outside perspective is really helpful. It's very easy to get caught in, you know, in any company, including my own, that there are certain things that you do a certain way. Yes. Um, you know, we have a project where we brought in a, a new product manager recently and, you know, we're trying to do some things a little bit differently from based on her perspective from, from working at a, you know, a similar but different company. Maybe we can mm -hmm. benefit a little bit from that. And there's some things that maybe we just kind of get caught in doing the same ways and those same ways basically work, but they could be better. And yeah. so there's an outside perspective to be brought in there um, as well. But I, I do think that, that, you know, different, especially if you're talking about outsourcing in a certain sense, you know, the entire project to a company like, you know, like mine, that we can really, you know, look at things in a, in a different way, provide some methods that maybe the internal team hasn't been able to use as much, um, maybe be a little bit freed from the, some of the, the thinking constraints and provide a, a, a fresh approach to things and also provide a lot of the production pieces. So, you know, our company, for example, will, you know, bring in video and, and do all that and manage the entire process and do it all in a holistic way so that what we're producing is, you know, there's a design lead in charge of the entire project and everything from the technology to the video, to the scripting, to everything else is done by people who have that in mind and it's all holistic. Mm -hmm. And that I think you know, that's a lot of effort too, and requires a lot of people to work together in maybe some ways that are harder to do internally than they are externally. Yes, absolutely. Completely agreed. Well, this was a fantastic, fantastic book and really great resource for people and organizations to better understand this very important topic because you want to create good online learning and good learning experiences. So I highly, highly recommend it. And very quickly on June 14th, it's coming up to your conference, the Learning Ideas Conference taking place June 14th. The Learning Ideas Conference is back both online and in New York at Columbia. So very much looking forward to that where academics and practitioners come together to talk about all things learning, both in corporations and in higher ed. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting ideas exchanged. But before we end, I just wanted to hear, and you'd cover some of the future developments in the book, but what are you most excited about in terms of corporate e-learning? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to a lot of the, the potential changes at this point. We're at a huge time in terms of, you know, artificial intelligence all of a sudden jumping to the forefront, looking at where new technologies, AR and VR and AI can be used to create really, really fascinating and engaging learning experiences, I think is where we want to go next. Sometimes it takes the technologies becoming a little bit more mainstream for corporations to be ready to accept them as part of, you know, almost everyday learning. And so there's a lot to think about in terms of how to best put those into practice and what are the best ways to do that? What are the right kinds of experiences that we want to create? But I'm, I'm really looking forward to being at maybe a time of 
of change and opportunity uh, once again in the corporate learning world. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you once again for coming to talk about the book. And I look forward to seeing you shortly in New York. Fantastic. It'll be great to see you again. Thanks again for having me on the podcast. Thank you.